0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories, and now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Hi. Hey, Uh how are you? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing?
1: I'm okay. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you. A pleasure.
1: We're, we're getting ready to go back to school. <laughs> you <laughs> saw my face, right? <laughs> so, yeah, classes start on Monday. No, actually meetings and all of that, and then classes the following week. So,
0: And is there any excitement or any uh, <laughs> apprehension? How would you describe it?
1: Well, I mean, I've kind of been cooped up in my house. I've been teaching. I taught, I'm teaching at two universities. I'm teaching at Florida Memorial University, and I'm also teaching at the University of Miami. Okay. And uh, I taught a, a course I love to, and I, I love to say it like this, the evolution of rock.
2: Hmm.
1: <laughs> All summer long. It's been fun. And uh small class. And actually, one of my students went to the Olympics. Oh, wow. She was a diver, but actually not representing the United States, representing Sweden. And uh, she did very well. She came very close to the uh, semifinals, lost it by ten uh, nine tenths of a point. So, but it was fun. It was fun. I did it online as opposed to doing it in person. But we're going back in person at both places.
0: Wow. So I'm guessing there's, there's a little bit of, it, it's kind of like, you haven't been doing something for a while, and then you jump back in.
1: Well, all right. Here's the thing with me. I tell people this, and and, <laughs> and it's a little strange, but I have no off switch in my head. Ah. I'm always doing something. When COVID hit last year, a lot of the big centers like the Arsh Center down here and Miramar Cultural Arts Center, a lot of these places I do something with, you know, on some level. And they immediately said, we need content, right? Because nobody could go anywhere. So I had to think and I said, ah, got it. So I did stuff for kids. I read books. I, I put music to books and I read interesting books to kids. I did workshops. I did online performances. I did, you know, kind of collaborative performance things where I got Kids that I work with and put them together, and so I found stuff. I've been busy the entire time.
0: Well, to paraphrase David Letterman, there is no off switch on the genius button. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not a genius. I'm just someone that I have to, I have to constantly be creative. Right. Yes just who I am. And if I'm not doing it, I do it vicariously through my students, but I have to be busy. I just, that's who I am.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to introduce you. So the woman that I'm joined with, this is Nicole Yarling I'm with, and I think she's somebody who can't be defined by a single talent. She's a violinist, a teacher, as she's been saying, a songwriter, a singer, a performing artist. She's worked as a recording artist. She's originally from Brooklyn. And these days, she moved to Florida back in the 80s. She's worked with everyone from Dr. John, Dizzy Gillespie, Jimmy Buffett. She had her own group, which if you can find these recordings, you will really be happy. Little Nikki and the Slicks. Yay. So thank you so much for making the time to talk to me to real honor.
1: Well, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Now, with all those things that I've I've listed, and you've said you you got to stay active, what would you say you're happiest doing?
1: Uh, being creative. I know that sounds evasive, but as long as I'm working on a project now called Voice of the Nation, and hopefully it'll be in person, but it's basically taking a bunch of songs that I think are cool and that are, make a social statement. Like I did a new rendition of Big Yellow Taxi and, but the, the songs are varied, but my renditions of these songs. So I think that that's the best way to describe me. I, as long as I'm, what I enjoy most is being creative. I love to sing, I love to play, I love to write, and I love working with kids. But as long as I can do that creative thing, I think that's what makes me happiest. I said, I hope I answered your question.
0: I think so. I think so. Now, that's an interesting place to, to, you know, you mentioned Joni Mitchell, and I think she's one of the best all-around artists out there. But the music that you grew up with, who really, really got you going. You made you think, wow, this is, this is music.
1: Well, my dad played and there was an organ at one point. There was a piano in my house and there was another point there was an organ in my house. So there was always music in my house. I grew up listening to everything, just like most of us or people, my age uh, listened to rock and roll jazz. And it's funny because my dad was a jazz musician and there were records in my house. And I would sit down, and I remember specifically listening to Dexter Gordon, and there was an album called, Lady, uh, sorry, Dexter Plays the Horn. I think that's what it's called. And it was a little boy on the front of the cover with the saxophone. And I'm not a great visual artist, but I would listen to the music and lay on the floor and kind of copy this picture. And I didn't listen to jazz because I thought it was hip. I listened to it because it was just I liked the sound of it. I didn't understand it at the time. But I treated it the same way I treated the Beatles or I treated the Supremes or whatever was playing on radio. I just love music. So, yeah.
0: And what would you say what would you say was your first instrument?
1: <laughs> You're going to ask me this. It was my toy piano.
0: Oh, really? Uh, <laughs>
1: I got a toy piano when I was a kid, and I wrote my very first song on my toy piano, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It was called I Cannot Fly, and it only had had four notes. I cannot fly. I cannot. That was the whole song.
0: That was the first one.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's silly, but. And then I, I got a violin in, through public schools. That's when the music programs were pretty strong in, in uh, public schools. And they wouldn't let us bring the instruments home initially, but they let us bring the books home. So I sat and uh, this is kind of bizarre, but that's how much of a geek I was. I read through the entire book and like memorized the notes. So I, I guess my voice replace the violin. Then when they gave me the instrument that it was over, I took it home and I took it apart and I put it back together. I figured out how to do that. Yeah. So my very first instrument was the piano, toy piano. I'm a terrible piano player, by the way. And then the violin. And then I I always sang. So,
0: you know, to say that you sing is an understatement. Uh, I want to tell you something. It was years ago I had the actor Jeff Bridges on as a guest, and he was in a movie when he was very young called The Last Picture Show. Great movie. And so I was digging through my, my many albums, and I found this band that you were, you were the, the lead vocalist on this track. You sang a song called The Last Picture Show. And I remember we we played that as a part of the show because that was one of his first movies. And it was just a little connection, just two titles that were alike. And I'll still remember I was was recording and producing the show with a guy named Jeff Pike, and we finished the track, and he said, who is this singing? He said, this is just, and he's a great singer too. He said, this is one of the best singers I've ever heard. And I said, well, this is uh, Nicole Yarling. Who oh, are? That's
2: great.
0: <laughs> the engineer. I have to be totally honest. It was the engineer who said about the about your vocals, not Jeff Bridges.
1: Oh. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got excited. No, but so uh, thank the engineer. Oh my god. Oh yeah.
0: And he, I was saying that the, that he's a great as singer as well. But uh, a great song also. Great song.
1: Thank the you. buzzwords. Thank you for Lindsay. And she's a very good songwriter and a great guitar player as well. So,
0: so wow. who are the singers that have influenced you the most?
1: It's good. Uh, here we go. It'll be kind of bizarre. Mostly men. As far as jazz singers, Etta Jones, not Eddie James, because when I say that, everybody thinks Etta James. Etta Jones, who was from the kind of the Billie Holiday School of Singing great singer, I got to meet her a couple of times, wonderful person. And Donny Hathaway, everyone's favorite singer, just an amazing, an amazing voice and an amazing soul. And everybody loves Stevie, but the toss up between the two, I'm more of a Donny person than I am a Stevie person. I love both, don't get me wrong, but I'm definitely more, there's something that Donny Hathaway does. And of course, my mentor, Joe Williams, the jazz singer, I'm knocked out by people that when I hear them, they're a unique sounding and, you know, their, their voice, there's something, it doesn't have to be the greatest voice on the planet, but there's something about them that reaches out and touches me. You know what I mean? And it makes me, it stops me in my tracks. And so I search around for that kind of, and that's what I tell my students all the time. You have a great voice, but really reach towards trying to be you, not somebody that, you know, I've never tried to imitate anyone. And the, the best compliment that I've ever gotten was when somebody said, I heard you and I knew it was you. You don't have to like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But just the fact that it's really important to me, the unique voice. But m- my favorites were probably Edith Jones, Donnie Hathaway. I love Ella. Jill Williams, Stevie Wonder. There's others, but those are the people that probably influenced me the most.
0: Would it be possible to define what it is that makes a great singer? Because I like what you were saying about uniqueness. You know, there's some people you just hear them sing and it's it's sometimes you think, now, this person, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily call them a great singer, but there's still something. It's like, wow.
1: Yeah, I'm a real big Neil Young fan, you know, and it's funny because or you think of Dylan and people go, oh, it wasn't the greatest voice in the world. It's not to me. I guess what I said, if if the person it's unique and the person reaches out and speaks to me, you know what I mean? With whatever their story is, it's, they're a good, I think the best way to describe it is they're great storytellers. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, it doesn't have to be the most incredible sounding book. Like I said, I'm teaching all these years. I've heard some amazing singers where their voices are so unique. They just fall out of their mouths. You know, they don't have to work at singing. And I'm bored. Because there is nothing. You know what I mean? They're they're so self-absorbed that they think that everyone is just going to automatically accept their greatness. But if you do that, and it feels insincere, people people know the difference. People know sincerity, and people read sincerity. So it's uniqueness, sincerity, and a story. I guess that's the best way to describe what makes a good singer for me.
0: The one thing that we can say about the first song that you wrote is that it has endured because you you remember it all these years later.
2: (laughs) Oh, God, yes. (laughs) <laughs>
0: I but get
1: a piano and play it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but tell us about how you continued on with writing because you've written some great songs too.
1: Wow! Well, thank you. It's funny because I lived in Brooklyn and I lived in a housing project and I had very little money, but I managed to come up with I think it was four hundred dollars to buy an upright piano. And it was awful. (laughs) It was awful. I think I had a tuner come in and tune it once. But, and again, not a great piano player, but I would sit at that piano and write and write and write. And I really wanted to be a songwriter. That's what I wanted to be. And I'll tell you an interesting story. My father had a friend and I didn't really know how do I describe this? I didn't know uh, who this guy was. right? So I used to go up, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you at the end, I used to go up and visit him. And he was, at the time, that's when people had contractors, and they used to have people write music out by hand, copyists, they used to call them. And I would go up. And I'd sit with him and he would tell me great stories. He copied my music for me. He'd listen to my songs. He encouraged me. And then I would leave his office and I'd go down the hall and there would be these rooms full of sheet music. And I'd go through the bins, 50 cents, 25 cents for sheet music. It was a Brill Building. And I didn't know the importance of the real building. <laughs> <laughs> so I would go up there and sit and he'd play songs for me. This guy's name was Phil Medley. And he was one of the writers on Twist and Shout. Right? Because wow. there were a couple. So I would go see him and then I'd go downstairs. And what's the very famous, there's a very famous, now I'm, I'm having a senior moment, very famous record store on the corner. And diagonally across the street was the famous Birdland where Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and all these people played. So it was an exciting time. It was probably the late 70s because I left and moved to Florida in 80. But it was, you know, when I think back, it was pro- It was amazing. I got to hang out with a Brill Building songwriter, and I would go in the Brill Building like it was nothing. I went back. <laughs> they wouldn't let me in the building
2: <laughs>
1: mm. <laughs> I went to the lobby And I was talking to the garden And I was telling him these stories And he's like, I said, so can I come in? He goes, no
2: mm. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: So,
1: yeah that was That was an amazing Experience without even realizing it
0: So what inspired you to move To Florida?
1: A man A man <laughs> Yeah Well, I moved down and I was only going to stay a week and 40 years later, 40 years, yeah. Been here for 40 years, 41. December will be 41 years.
0: 41 years.
1: Yeah. Lived in Florida for 41 years. I'm not, I'm not, I'm very happy because what it did was it afforded me opportunity to do things, amazing things, because it was like a... A playing field was wide open and I was able to create stuff, make stuff up. And that's what I liked to do. So in bands and playing with people, opportunity, the opportunities for me were endless. So yes, I'm grateful for being here.
0: Can you tell us about the music scene in the part of Florida that you're in, the, the Miami area?
1: Let's see. (laughs) What can I tell you? Right now, there's not much of a scene for anybody, but it was really, really, really interesting. When I first moved to Miami in the 80s, it was really like Miami Vice. There were still old people living in those hotels on Ocean Drive. And we would play on, on the patios of the hotels, they'd wheel out a piano or you play in the lobby. And it was, it was very, very, very different. It then became, you know, a hip place and ocean drive, you know, a bunch of, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I had a blues gig with a great guitar player, John Wenzel, who was in my band, Little Nicking His Slicks, And we played a blues brunch on Saturday Afternoons And people like I remember this uh, Especially Mick Hucknell Simply Red Was you know he'd sit there And listen to us play and he was Very very sweet and kind And I think he was part Owner of I don't know that hotel or someplace. but people were buying up properties And then they started to To revamp All of these places and Then it became like Disneyland. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very different. There were great clubs. There um, there was a place called Woody's, which everybody associated and thought Ron would own, but he didn't. Or, uh, there was a gentleman, I believe, Woody Graver. A bunch of great people would come. The Stones would come in and hang out in the club. and There were great places that were kind of almost makeshift. Hmm. You know, at one time, they were like funky clubs, but famous people, Prince would come down and play when he, I saw Prince though, in LA at the old China club. Oh, wow. Prince had a habit of when he wanted to play, he would just call a club and say, hey, can I come down? That was one of the best shows I ever saw in my life. It was, I mean, I was spitting distance from him and he sat down and played nothing compares to you. Which he wrote, you know, uh, uh, Sinead O'Connor recorded, but he sat down and played piano and sang. And it was the band with Rosie Gaines, and it was, they played for about two hours. And it was a handful of people. I mean, there were people in the club, but I just felt like this personal, you know, incredible concert. And this stuff cannot be, you you, you can't recreate these things. But this would happen in Miami all the time. You know, famous people would come down and want to jam, sit in. I think that's how I met Jimmy. Yeah, I met Jimmy down at I was playing at the Reach, which is down in Key West, and Jimmy came in one night, and uh, he had been partying. So, and he came back again when he wasn't partying, and he sat in. He sat in with us, and then how did that work? Then I was playing at his club, Margaritaville, and I, 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 you know, I met him. Didn't know him that well. And then he came in one night, and he was partying, and he got up, and my violin was on the backside of my amp, and he hit my amp, and my violin went flying, and the fingerboard went with it. Oh boy! He fixed it. Then I saw him again at a heat game. I was singing the anthem. And then soon after that, he asked me to, we had dinner and he asked me to join the band. Now, I didn't know much about Jimmy, because I'm a New Yorker at this time. I'm still New Yorker. And he said, well, you have two options. You can play with my band, or you can play with Fingers,
2: <laughs>
1: who had a band called the Lady Fingers great band debbie davies great uh blues guitar player and Jennifer magnus a bunch of these people went on a great great players and i was like mm, i didn't know i <laughs> went mm, i'll play with you <laughs> i didn't know i had no idea so that was amazing i mean things like that happened in miami i i uh, another great opportunity was uh a friend of mine who's great singer was very, very, very pregnant. I mean, very pregnant and Albert Lee needed a singer. He didn't even need, I, I just so happened. That I played, you know, violin too. So he came and there was a short lived, uh, music chain called Mars music. I don't know if you guys had a Mars music.
2: Hmm, maybe
1: it was the guy that owned. Office Depot and he used the same concept for a music store. And it was this massive place where people could come in and play and he had a stage and a sound system and Albert Lee did an instructional video. So I got to play with Albert Lee and I sang, um, my baby thinks he's a train with Albert Lee and uh, a couple other things, and I hung out with him, and he was the sweetest guy on the planet. And he actually came out to he no, he didn't. His wife came out to hear me in L.A. when I was out there performing. So, I mean, I, the stories are endless. I can, I can go on and on and on about these things, some really good, some not so great. But it's been a great opportunity for me being
0: here. And I think a lot of people would maybe have the misconception that south florida that's only cuban music or it's only and that would be a misconception cuz there's all kinds of oh. of different musicians in florida
1: yeah and it's weird because i just i've been the last couple of days i've had a discussion about people and and cuban music or this city is still musically segregated hmm. and and it's sad because I mean, I'm somebody that plays a lot of different styles of music and have friends in all the camps, so I know. But I was talking to a student who's a a teaching assistant for a class I'm teaching, and we got into the subject, and I said, especially with Latin music in um, South Florida, you really have to know somebody to go to the places where a lot of the music happens. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like you have to know somebody that knows where this club is so you could go and hear some authentic music, you know, played authentically by Cuban musicians or whatever. And the same thing with like Haitian music. You have to know someone, you know, you can go to a little Haiti, but to really hear some of the, the really good Players and stuff. You have to know someone. It's 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 really really sad to me because that to me is the common denominator between everybody music, you know. And that's what it's been for me all these years. That's Hmm. why I have friends in all all the
2: camps. So,
0: well, we've mentioned a few people now. And at the beginning, I was I was saying that you've recorded or worked with or performed with Dr. John Dizzy Gillespie. Jimmy Buffett, as we've been saying, has there been somebody that really, really impressed you?
1: Lots, lots. It's funny, I, Dr. We, the, the way I worked with Dr. John was, there was a club in Miami called Biscayne Baby. And this place was amazing. We had a really big band, a bunch of University of Miami students and a bunch of different people. And I sang and played violin. And it was in Coconut Grove. And what it was, was it was a house band, but they would bring in these, I hate to say oldies, but these like rock and roll stars. Wilson Pickett. Oh God, uh, Bo Diddley came. I I can't even think of half of the people. But when Dr. John came, that was one of the highlights for me. I sat and talked to him. And he was telling me who he loved. He would said, Irma Thomas was one of his favorite singers. And he was just this really kind of warm, really cool person. And then I got to sing background for him. You know, for me, that was like one of the highlights of my life, you know? So him, another instance, this was not in, in Miami, but this was in New Orleans. Uh, I was on the road with Buffett. And Joni Mitchell, you mentioned Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell was going to sing, sit in with Jimmy Buffett in New Orleans. And I think we were at Tibetina's. No, we weren't. It was a benefit for hmm. something else. So everybody else was like, oh, my God, it's Joni Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I know Big Yellow Taxi. I know both sides now. right?" So at one point, <laughs> and I tell people the story because to me it's great. Everybody left. I don't know who or where they were. Everybody was gone except Joni Mitchell and I in a tent. And so because I didn't have that starstruck thing about Joni Mitchell, she wrote a song called Cherokee Louise, which I listened to and it blew me away. It was about a Native American girl that had been sexually abused. And so I walked over to her and I asked her about the song. We had about 20 minutes, half hour conversation, just about music with nobody around. It was the most, it was, she was another, like one of those instances where you catch people, you know, and you're a peer, you're not a fan, you're not, and you just have an honest, really cool conversation. You know, I didn't know about the alternate tunings and I didn't know all the fancy stuff. I just knew, I thought she was really cool. Hmm. So we sat and had a really nice conversation and I said, see you later, I'll sing background for you. Okay, bye. <laughs> What's the end of the conversation?
2: Wow. But,
1: yeah, it's those kind of things to me that are priceless. I can't, I, there's no other way to define it. it. They're just things that I can't, I couldn't buy. They're, they happen once. And they're, you know, Dizzy. What happened with Dizzy? This was a weird one. I had just bought an album. Dizzy Gillespie had a short lived radio, uh, record label. And I think D, I forgot what it was called. But anyway, I bought this uh, record because Duff Smith, the violinist was on it. And I really liked it. And I had learned a version of Blue Skies. Just coincidentally, I'm in Coconut Grove. I'm singing with this uh, big band that I sang with on Monday nights. Who walks in? But Dizzy Gillespie. (laughs) So he's sitting in the audience. (laughs) So I get up and I sing this song. You know, not to him. I just sing the song. So he came up and he thanked me. And, you know, we, we were kind of talking. And, yeah, I took some pictures with him. But that was it went home, my phone rings the next day. And his manager says, where are you? uh I'm home. (laughs) (laughs) He said, why aren't you here on the beach? Dizzy wants you to work with him this week. Wow. Now I'm really, really green. Right? I'm really young and I'm really green. You know? (laughs) So i worked (laughs) with him for a week I was so nervous I you know he was the kindest most generous person he paid me he told me I reminded him of stuffy stuff Smith and like I said you know I I can't I'm yeah no words can ever describe those kind of experiences and I've had a lot of them so
0: yeah wow Well, you know, what a story. And uh, I've said several times on this show, Blue Skies is one of my all-time favorite songs.
1: Really? Yeah. This is a funny version of it. The lyrics were, I'll just recite the beginning of it. All right. Up there in blue skies, down there is the sea. Over there is a great big whale, and he's looking at me. I'll tell the world, I sure can't swim, but it would take a submarine to out-swim <laughs> was They were silly, silly lyrics. Uh-huh. And so I guess I touched him when I sang them because I don't know who was singing. I don't know if it was Joe Carroll. I don't remember who was singing it, but it was, it was, <laughs> it, these things you can like I said, it wasn't, I couldn't script anything quite this amazing. You know what I mean? Just I buy an album over the weekend and there this the man that recorded the song walks in. You know. So, yeah, really 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 cool thing.
0: Well, I want to go back to Jimmy Buffett for a moment. Okay. There was an album that you appeared on from him. He had taken a break from recording. He hadn't had a studio album and then he came back With the legendary producer Russ Kunkel, and you are on the album Fruitcakes. Yeah. Different sounding album. Can you recall those sessions?
1: Yeah. We recorded, hmm, I believe we recorded at Compass Point. Yeah. And we went to Nassau. And I had an incredible collection of of amplifiers. I was more impressed with that. Uh, Russ was a sweetheart. And it was really cool. I sang background on some stuff, and I sang, and I played violin on, uh, I'm going to say Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And it was really, really cool. And really nice to be, you know, a part of a project like that. You no, know, And I know that was a, Fruitcakes was a hit for him. I think I was singing on Fruitcakes, too. I don't remember. Yeah. So that was cool.
0: What was it like being on the road with Buffett and the Coral Reefers?
1: Like uh, a summer vacation playtime. I mean, in the beginning, we, we did buses. By the end, and like the end of my time with him and on, he would fly the band places, five-star hotels, you know, the greatest accommodations, great band, never had to work very hard. It's a show. So you do the same things every night. But, you know, you're in various cities and you could, after the gig, you could go out and, and make stuff up. So it was really, really a great experience. He treated the band and all of its members well the the band was consisted of uh, an amazing array of of musicians and people, really really cool people so yes it was a great i think I did three years great three years
0: well, kind of related to buffett there 's a compilation album it 's much much coveted by people because it 's harder to find but the margaritaville cafe i think late night menu. If you look on the liner notes, there is a name that comes up the most, and that name is yours because not only is Little Nicky and the Slicks on two or three tracks, but also you wrote a track that you did with Amy Lee. Your name comes up a lot. And uh, I'm hoping you can tell us about the formation of Little Nicky and the Slicks.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you, I'll I'll go back and tell you that, that Iana Sokatesh, Buffett said to me, Jimmy said, Can you write a Zook tune? <laughs> what tune? Oh? <laughs> what is Zook? You know, so I had no idea what Zook tune was. I mean Zook music was. And so I got a really fast lesson in, <laughs> in writing. So it was fun to write that song. Oh, Little Nicky in the Slicks. So when I moved to Miami and my, my ex-husband, John, was playing drums with a band called Fat Chance Blues Band. Great band, great guys. I still, I'm in touch with all of them and I love them. And I would sit in with them and they had a residency, we'll call it at Tobacco Road. You know, the now defunct Tobacco Road. And I would be there and I'd sit in and little by little, I think somebody had called me for a gig. And I kind of borrowed bits and pieces of the band from, uh, fat chance. And, uh, we did, it was a blues festival in Fort Lauderdale at a place called musicians exchange. And it was the first gig we'd ever done together. And it went so well that, you know, we kind of morphed into this band, uh little Nicky and the slicks. And we became very, very popular in the area and then we added another guitar player who's a lawyer, who's now living in Nashville and doing very well. He retired from law and he just plays music. So I had two guitar players and uh bass drums and myself. And it was a popular band and I loved the band. We traveled, we went to Europe, we recorded, we did a bunch of stuff and just it was I think it it started to wane when I started working with Buffett. And I, another great experience that I can't replicate, you know,
0: so. Well, can you tell us about the inspiration behind one of the songs you wrote? Do nothing, man. Ain't no woman, um, ain't no woman want to do nothing, man.
1: Don't no woman want to do nothing, man. Well, the inspiration She'll remain (laughs) nameless, anonymous, totally anonymous. But there was someone I knew knew that had a partner, a wife, who just didn't get it. She just didn't get it. You know, musician, the life of a musician is, I, I jokingly say there are musicians and then there's civilians, right? And if a musician marries a civilian, the civilian has to have a sense of humor, <laughs> patience, <laughs> because we're a different animal, right? And it, sometimes it's not about how much money we make or how successful we are, or, you know, how famous we are. And I think she was kind of banking on him becoming famous and making a lot of money. So the idea behind the song that's where she really was the the uh, inspiration for the song because she lived she really did live up to it. <laughs> They're no longer married and haven't been for a long time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the the mystery is, is now is now satisfied. So it was based on real life
1: Yeah, it really, really (laughs) was. Trust me. (laughs) I was like, "Whoa, okay." And I know it's bad English. Don't know woman it's okay.
0: Well, have a lot of people told you that they identified with that song?
1: Nobody would ever admit. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody would ever admit that in a million years. That's funny. No, they haven't. They haven't. That's funny.
2: No. (laughs)
1: No, you know, it's funny because uh, it's seldom, but there was one song I wrote a long time ago when I was, I we had a group called Strings Attached with a great jazz saxophone trumpet player, Ira Sullivan. And I wrote a song called Wonderful Sound. And people used to come up to me and say, I know exactly what you mean by that. And I I wrote the song, it came, that's another story, but someone gave me a piano and I sat down and I kind of played through the piano and the song came to me in one sitting. And so maybe it was divinely inspired, I don't know. But, you know, sometimes people read into things (laughs) and people would come up and kind of, you know, and I'd look at them like, Okay, if that's what it means for you, <laughs> then, then so be it. But, yeah, no no one ever did that to me. So. <laughs> so.
0: A lot of times when, I'll, when I'll, I'll interview a songwriter, I'll tell them what the song meant to me or what I thought it meant, and it's very, very frequent that the writer will say, I dig what you said. But that is not what the song is about at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it happens.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, like I said, sometimes it's based, like, uh, you hear a title in your head. You know, you, you you hear something, and then you write around that. Or you might hear a lyric, and, and then you write a song based on a lyric. And, you know, so it, it really, I don't know. For me, I'm not of the craftsman songwriter. I'm not somebody that sits down. I had friends all my life that sat down and wrote every day, or they wrote for somebody with somebody in mind. And I, for the most part, wrote for myself. I've always written for myself. Now, a couple of people have recorded my songs, which makes me feel good, but I generally write for myself. You know, so I did come up with a crazy rendition of. I took Led Zeppelin's one levee breaks, and these boots are made for walking, and combined them, and they work. It worked really cool. So somebody recorded that that arrangement. Interesting.
0: I'd like to hear that.
1: It's actually, I have to (laughs) find it. We recorded it somewhere, but I have to find her version. She was from. uh, maybe from the Netherlands. And it was a producer, uh, a rock producer that, that liked the arrangement and said, I want to do it. I, I don't, I have the, the CD around here somewhere. I have no idea where it is now, but, but yeah, I've had all kinds of, um, <laughs> I, I, I will tell you a story because I've been telling this to my music business classes and my evolution of rock class. And it's an interesting story, and it's it's a tale of woe, sort of, but it's actually kind of funny. Not really. I had a Millie Vanilli moment. You remember Millie right. Vanilli?
2: Oh, of course. <laughs> <All> <laughs>
1: right. So this is a great story. So Lil Nikki and the Slicks had gone to Europe. And it was weird because I remember now that it was around the time of the Gulf War and there was a lot of, just a bunch of things went wrong. And and so we come home and uh, we're, you know, we're just kind of like, so one of the guitar players from the band and I were playing in coconut grove, just a duo gig. And these guys come, these two guys come by and, and I'm, I'm, Forgive my accent. It's not the greatest, but, and the guy says, hello. My name is Alex and I'm from Germany. Like he said, right? so I said, hi Alex from Germany. And he said to me, and I quote, can you sing like Martha Wash?" Now we all know the Martha Wash story, right? You, you do, you know, about CNC music factory and all right. I'll, I'll tell you that. Anyway, so I went, sure. Martha Wash is an amazing singer. In fact, Martha Wash is It's Raining Men.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Okay, that's Martha Wash. And Martha Wash is this amazing session singer who sang with Sylvester uh, back in the disco days. Amazing voice. Was, they were called Two Tons of Fun.
2: Amazing
1: voice. In fact, Paul Schaefer produced It's Raining Man. I think like her, no, (laughs) I think she's great. Anyway, so yeah, sure. Why not? So he says, he takes my information. It was so long ago that we were still like faxing stuff. Right? So I take his information and I, just for the giggles, I sent him a note, right? When I got home, he sent me the information. He bought plane tickets. I said, I'll fly you to Hamburg. I will pay you X amount of dollars. And it was a sizable amount of money. Come over and sing some songs. All right. So I had a friend that a musician here in town uh, from Germany. He said, oh, they always ask these uh, American singers to come over and sing and eh, probably won't amount to anything. I was like, okay. So I go over and I had to be back. So I stayed a day and a half and i sang five songs maybe five six i don't know it was a bunch of songs and it's one song i'm sitting there and i'm listening to it and i'm like it sounds like this da 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 da, 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 da. That sounds like time after time so i look at the guy and i start singing time after time and he kind of smirks and, you know, so I, go, go ahead. Sing the song. so I sing the song. He said, now, if any of these songs hit, I'll pay you additional money. Hmm. Now, all of these songs sounded like this to me. Boom, 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 right?
2: <laughs>
1: like German dance club music, right? Right. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I make money, I walk away nothing and i signed and i still have the documents i signed away the rights to anything come home so my my ex-husband says to me did you ever check the charts to see if any of that stuff charted i said no because i didn't really think it was that good <laughs> so we were in borders still was borders at the time we we're in borders i go over and i pick up a billboard magazine The song charted, the one I sang for you, charted in several countries. Wow. In the top ten. So I immediately go, where's my money? A bunch of things happened. Um, The song hit. And in part, there was copyright infringement. And Cyndi Lauper's camp, you know, stopped... I was going to sue them, and then she got writing credit on the song. The song was a massive hit. Hmm. All right? So he says, all right, so you'll come back, you'll do more songs. So I go back and I do more songs. But here's the catch, and I'll show you, I'll send you a link to the the videos. You can see yourself. It's me, but it's not me. I see. There's someone lip syncing to me.
0: Ah. (laughs) What?
1: Yes. And I mean, this was a massive hit, right? So I go back and I meet the person who is me. (laughs) She's a dancer. And she said, I hope they never ask me to sing live because I can't sing at all. Wow. (laughs) I couldn't make this up. This is what I'm saying. This is my life. This is... (laughs) You know, the things that happened. So she said, are you angry? I said, I might be if I lived in Hamburg, but not really. So they paid me a ton of money. And the second record didn't do nearly as as good as the first. But there were hits on the first one. Now, that was late 90s. So you say, ah, it's 20 years. I went back and looked. (laughs) This guy is still making money on that massive hit he had, he's still making money. And he has other people being me now. I mean, but they're actually singing. Hmm. And so I sent him an email, I mean, a message the other day. I said, you might as well have me (laughs) be faceless again and pay me to come back out and you use my voice. I don't care. But I, I made, I said this to, and I tell my students this because this business is very interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and with Martha Wash, she went back and sued CNC Music. Uh, and did everybody dance now? is her. Right? Hmm. But the model is about as big as my arm. You know what I mean? And, and real model esque. But she's this big, rotund woman that doesn't look like this model. But her voice, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah.
1: they did that with me. And, and, you know, I, I could care less, but I if I knew what I know now, I would have asked for points or something, some kind of residuals, because they paid me a flat rate and sent me packing, packet. <laughs> and they're still making money years, years, years later. So it's just, it's a life lesson. It's, it happens all the time. Yeah. There's lots of young people out there giving music away you know, for nothing. You know, the whole story of like Otis Blackwell gave his publishing to Colonel Parker for Elvis songs. He wrote Fever. He wrote Heartbreak Hotel. He wrote Jailhouse Rock. He wrote all these songs. And he basically gave the songs. He still owned the the writers. Right. He gave the publishing to Colonel Parker. And Elvis's name is, Elvis didn't write the songs. Otis Blackwell, a little teeny black man, wrote the songs. Hmm. A lot of people don't know about him. So, you know, and in my years of (laughs) experiencing Knox from every different angle, I have these experiences to share with students, you know, and says, you know, I I wouldn't trade anything that's happened to me ever. Mm. But I have these stories to share with with my students and say, don't do what I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been there. They can learn from that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's been, it's, I guess because I do have a gift. I, and you know, I was blessed with a gift and people are, how can I say it? People will take advantage.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Very simple. If you, if, I, I always ask people, my students, please learn the business Know that it is the music business and the business part is very important, and just don't don't walk in anything don't sign your your rights away to things. go to a lawyer, ask for help, you know ask for advice, don't be impatient you know just you know hmm.
0: so. well, this might be a, a tough question, but I would be very curious to know if you could go back. And tell Nicole Yarling When you were starting in the music business If you could tell her something What would you say to her?
1: Be your your crazy creative self For the rest of your life (laughs) I don't think I really, to be honest with you I don't really think there's much I would change I mean Was my life perfect? No Is it over? No, it's not over. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Um, But I wouldn't change anything about my life. I really wouldn't. I think I was having a conversation with a a friend earlier today. He said, you know, things happen for a reason. And sometimes they're good things and sometimes they're not. But as long as you learn from the good and the bad, then it's worth whatever the experience was, I guess. And so, no, I wouldn't. I, I would tell me to continue to be my usual crazy <laughs> <laughs> self and just continue to love what you do. And when it becomes, we uh, a friend and I were having this conversation. When it becomes a job for you, it's time to do something else, hmm. you know, it's not a job. It's, it's my life. It's what I do. And people say, oh, don't, you know, your career. Nah, nah. You know, I wake up every morning and I'm thinking about music and I'm writing stuff. and you know. so It makes me happy.
0: When somebody takes a class with you, uh-huh. is there something that you want them to take from, I mean, I'm sure there's several things, but is there like a greater a greater thing that you want them to walk away with it from? Yeah. What's that?
1: It's funny because I taught, like I said, this evolution of rock class, this is a perfect example, this summer, is for non-majors. These people are business people or sports people, athletes, whatever, and they could care less. This is a basket weaving class. You know, and I'm talking about music from the beginning of early America through, and I don't know who, whoever designed this class ended music in the eighties, but that's a long story for another day. (laughs) But these are babies. Now I'm looking at them, you know, they're like late teens, early twenties. So the music I'm talking about is the music of their parents and their grandparents. So. I don't try to burden them with a lot of like big books to read and, and uh, facts and, you know, figures and no, because I know what'll happen. They'll shut down and, and their eyes will glaze over and they could care less. So I try in every class, I try to share my love and my passion. Right. Based in fact, I use facts, <laughs> but I try to come at it from an angle. I tell them stories of things that I know firsthand and that I'm not making up. I include a lot of visual stuff because when you talk about a Victrola to a 20 year old. <laughs> They've never seen a big troller. Most of them, a lot of them, haven't even really seen. They know turntables now because they're back in, in fashion, but you know, they, you have to engage people. And we live in a very visual society now. People want stuff now, and they want it immediately, and they want to look at it.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So. All right, so the best, I said all of that to say this, the best reward I got, my class was small. During the regular school year, it's like 160 people. The summer class was 13 people. I got some of the best emails at the end of the class. They said, I hate rock and roll guitar, but now I don't hate it. It was hmm. my parents' music. I don't listen to it, but now you've opened my ears, and now I'm starting to listen to it. Somebody today sent me a picture. They're in Disney, uh, <laughs> and they went by the the, the uh, House of Rock. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, the
0: the Hard Rock Cafe?
1: The, not the Hard Rock.
0: The House Blues. of Blues?
1: House of Blues. Thank you, Brain. <laughs> um, they went by the the house of blues and they sent me a picture. And so I get these emails from students and, you know, you think you're boring them, to tears with your stories. And they're like, we really enjoyed the class, you know? So I, and I had students in China and I, I did, <laughs> hmm. so it, I, And at the end of, you know, I've had people say, hey, are you teaching any other classes? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, it's like I said, as animated and as crazy as I appear to be. (laughs) I I try to share people, uh, I try to share my passion with people. And I think people, like I said, in the beginning of our conversation, people read Sincerity. And even if they're not interested, if you're sincere about it and they say you're passionate, they buy in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And this I I love this stuff. You know, I really do. I love talking about it. I love experiencing it. I love, you know, sharing this with my students. So yes, what I want them to take away is understanding the the, the love of of the music, knowing a little bit more about the music and listening to the music with a different set of ears. You know what I mean? Not just kind of listening at it, cause it's in the car. When you listen to it, you'll think about me. When you hear the Beatles, you'll think about me. When you hear Led Zeppelin, you'll think about me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you'll think about what we talked about in class. So yeah, that's what I do. And I, I, I lecture older adults too. And I work with little kids. But the passion level <laughs> stays the same. I don't care who it is. So,
0: Well, there's one side street before we go that I, I almost forgot about this. But Uh-oh. I have an album. I used to play this on the radio. And I think the title, it's the the An Evening With. It's you and it's I, I, it might be called Williams and Yarling, uh, An Evening With.
1: Wait, is it, is it the uh, Manchester Craftsman's Guild? Is it, is it the Joe Williams album?
0: The Joe Williams album, yes. Oh. Can you tell us about that recording?
1: Yeah, and, and all right. All right, that's, that's very, very special to me. Uh, years and years and years ago, there was a gentleman uh, in South Florida named Joe Rowland. Played vibes, and he was really gruff, and he talked like this, me. <laughs> sweetheart. Hmm. And I used to go and sit in with him when I first moved down there. And he said, "Yeah, if you ever, if you ever record anything, I've got a friend. Everybody has a friend, right?" So, ten years after he said that to me. I was doing Art Deco weekend and it was freezing and it was just the right combination of people. And I said, let's go in and record. And the bass player, uh, another one of those st- strange co- coincidences the bass player was leaving. He just got a job with the Pittsburgh symphony. So we went in and recorded and I called Joe. I said, Hey Joe, I finally recorded. So I don't know if this guy's still alive. so he sends it to this guy named John Levy and so I had no idea who John Levy was and just a quick aside, (laughs) I'm going to move over here for a second, I was working in a club and I just told somebody the story today and I'm sitting They used to play videos on the break. So I'm sitting there and I'm talking to somebody and I look like this over my shoulder and there's Joe Williams with Peggy Lee. And I had no idea where they were. And I said to whoever I was talking to, I said, man, I wish I were her. So fast forward, he sends it to John Levy. John Levy managed Nancy Wilson, at one point Arsenio Hall, To all of these people, amazing. He was the first African American manager in jazz. He played with George Shearing, played with a bunch of people, played with Billie Holiday when she got out of prison. That the Carnegie Hall concert. Anyway, so he liked what he heard, and he introduced me to Joe. Now I just told you that story, right? Almost a year. I can't make these things up. Almost a year to the day that I said that about, I was on stage with Joe Williams and we became fast friends. And then John Levy set this thing up so that I could go and record with Joe Williams in Pittsburgh where the bass player just got the gig with the Pittsburgh Symphony. (laughs) So that, that CD is from Manchester Craftsman's Guild, beautiful facility. In, in, a, in Pittsburgh. So we go and we record two days. Now, the idea was I was going to go out on the road with Joe. And then he was going to introduce me to his audience. And then I could go back and play his circuit. But a bunch of things happened. Joe. All right. So I, I didn't see Joe for a long time. Then I saw Joe at downtown Miami with the Basie band. I went down to hear him. I sat in and sang with him. And that was the last time I saw him alive. He had emphysema and he got sick in Seattle and he went home and they gave him some medicine that made him disoriented. And he got up out of the hospital bed and decided he was going to go home. Now, he was hopped up on some crazy medicine that made him really disoriented. He couldn't breathe. He was on a a, a oxygen tank. And he's living in Vegas. He walked out of the hospital, put his clothes on. The nurse let him go. And he told the nurse he was going out to smoke a cigarette. Does this make sense? So he gets up and he walks. And he walked. And he walked. And he dropped in the street and died. And they found him. John Levy called me and told me that Joe walked out of the hospital and no one knew where he was. And so later on that day, he called me back and said, well, they found him. He's dead. And that's how he told me. Mm. I, that's the same way I found out about my mom through a, a phone message. So the phone messages are bad. So anyway. So I go to the funeral in Vegas and I'm sitting there and all of his famous friends, Robert Goulet and Nancy Wilson, Diane Schur, all of these people, it's 500 people there. And I'm sitting there and this guy gets up and says, how did he say it? He said, when Basie left, when Joe left the Basie van, Basie took a night off, took the train with Joe up to Boston to a club up there. And the marquee read in small letters, Count Basie presents and then big letters, Joe Williams. Well, that CD reads Joe Williams presents Nicole Yarling," hmm. And I didn't know it. I had no idea. He never told me what he was doing. I didn't know that he did the same thing for me that Basie did for him. And so I cried like a baby <laughs> and then i waited a couple of years actually and asked his manager john and his wife would it be okay if i wrote a book so i i interviewed a t- i wrote a book it's it's not published it's, that's a whole story for another <laughs> but i interviewed amazing groups of people i i even interviewed bill cosby a long time ago, two <laughs> weeks before it was about two weeks before he made some uh, off-color statement, and this is going back a lot of years. So I interviewed Lou Rawls. I interviewed I just a ton of people, and yeah. So the book wasn't published. I still have it, um, and I think I'm going to do something with it myself. But it that was. Part of the reason why I work with kids, part of the reason why I teach, part of the reason why I share, because someone did something very, very special for me. And the only way I can keep what I have is by giving it away and sharing with somebody else. And so everybody that I work with, all the kids that I work with, and a lot of them going on to do great things, I tell them, the important thing, the only thing I want from you, I don't want money, I don't want anything. All I want you to do is to turn around and help somebody else. That's all. Hmm. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's what I'm saying. I've been blessed in my life with people that saw things in me that I couldn't see in me. And, you know, I, and this has been my whole life. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for asking me about that because, you know, I, I still tell people that that's very important to me. And it's not just a recording, it's everything that happened around the recording that is very, very important to me and was an impetus for me to teach all these years and to, and to go pretty much in a direction that I've gone in.
0: So, yeah. Well, I'm glad that I asked that question. I have that CD. It's somewhere in there. Uh, I'm going to leave in just a, a bit, and I'm going to I'm going to take that out and listen to it.
1: Thank you, thank you. I mean, I like I said, there's there's a lot of things I'm proud of, but that's one one thing that yeah, just the whole you know when when Joe passed away, people said to me, "Oh, you poor thing." No, I'm here. <laughs> There's nothing you know, and I had a life before Jill. I had a career and I was doing things before Jill. And people and and that's what was important to me, not that's why I waited a couple of years before I approached anybody about anything. Because I didn't want people to think that I was being opportunistic. You know what I mean? Here was somebody with a big heart that wanted to do something kind for me, and I'm grateful for that. But I didn't want to you know, rest on that and use that, you know, as an opportunity per se. I just saw somebody with a big heart that was being kind to me and believed in what I was doing, you know, and that's how I looked at it. I didn't look at it like, okay, cash cow, let's go. You know, oh, there are lots of people that would, (laughs) but that's never, that was never it for me ever.
0: Well, Nicole Yarling, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank, thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me rattle on.
0: <laughs> I've enjoyed it, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to see what happens with this book.
1: Yeah. You know what I think I'm going to do um, is I think I'm either going to narrate it myself and take uh, portions of it, and I may upload it to the Internet. In, in segments because it's re- his life is really, really interesting. The interesting thing about him, I'll tell you this real quick, is he appeared on like, Carson, The Tonight Show and just on television commercials. He was probably one of the most visible and invisible people in the business. He took a picture of Sinatra. There's a picture of Sinatra, a famous picture of Sinatra with a goatee. That was his picture. These people were his peers and his friends. And so that's why I waited and, and didn't self-publish the book, because I felt like he deserved the same accolades as Ella and Sarah. Sel- these were his friends. These were his peers. They weren't, you know, he wasn't like tier, tier B. These were people. These were his equals. And so that's why I, I didn't do that. But I think now there's some other stuff going on with it, but I think now I'm going to do it for myself, you know, and just take little bits and pieces of the book and and offer it because I think the story, his story is very, very interesting. You know, it's not my story. My connection with him is, is beautiful and all, but I just think, especially as jazz singers, he's somebody that he alone, there's a bunch of other singers that will be forgotten. You know what I mean? Because no one will ever forget Tony Bennett. No one will ever forget Frank Sinatra and no one will ever forget Ella or Sarah or Billie Holiday, but there's a wealth of other great singers that unless somebody talks about them, you won't hear, they'll, they'll you know, the wither away bill. And he was a very, very powerful singer and a great person. So I think it's important that I do that.
0: Well, I commend you for, for keeping the names of these people like Joe Williams out there. And it's been a real joy to talk to you. I hope we have a chance to talk again.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. This was really a, a
0: joy. My pleasure.
2: Alrighty. Ba, 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 poop,